sorry, I was waiting for a children's sermon. <laughs> well, good morning, University Presbyterian Church. My name is John Downs, and I'm the youth director here at UPC, and I am delighted to preach God's word with you. And I'm also exceedingly grateful that Matt and the elders here would share their pulpit. Um, it's, a, it's a kindness that I don't quickly overlook. Well, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open to Mark chapter 9, and that is on page 1075 in your blue Bible's And we're going to be studying Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And in these verses, we're going to look at an interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, There's going to be a conversation, and what we're going to see is that the disciples kind of miss the mark of Jesus in his ministry. And then Jesus is going to respond to this unbelief, respond to their missing the mark with grace. And so we're going to look at this because I think, if I'm being honest, I too struggle with understanding who Christ is and what he's calling me to in his kingdom. And so as we examine these verses, the question above the text is, who is the greatest? I want to look at two things. I want to look at the desire for greatness that the disciples have, and then how grace gives us a transformed definition of greatness. So desire for greatness and definition. I'm going to read the verses, then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work here. Hear now the living word of God. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to yourself. You have called us into a relationship with you, and you have told us what you require of us. Father, I pray that we would hear a word of grace this morning that calls us to die to ourselves and live to you, that your name might be made great, that you would be elevated, that we might decrease to your glory and to your honor. King Jesus, I pray that you would give us a grace and a wisdom to understand these words, that we might live in light of them by your grace and mercy and powerful Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. Uh, June 6, 1944 is more commonly remembered as D-Day, the day that the Allied powers invaded the beaches of Normandy uh, to have a, a pivotal battle in the point of World War II. And one of the most iconic things that we remember about this battle is that, that scene from Saving Private Ryan as the Allied forces are storming the beaches in their boat car things holding troops and they rush onto the beaches and they have this violent bloody battle but before the beaches before that day the allied forces had meticulously prepared for they had meticulously planned this whole invasion process and prior to the beaches being stormed there were two forces of paratroopers the 82nd airborne and the 101st that were to glide in behind the german lines drop in be a rallying point for the troops and to begin the battle on both sides of the line It was meticulously planned for, meticulously prepared for, but that early morning on June 6th, 
There was clouds, there was wind, there was German anti-aircraft. And so where the paratroopers had been designed to drop, they came in and they missed their marks. They missed the drop points and they were scattered all about the German or the French countryside and they had to fight and claw to get exactly to where they were supposed to be so that the battle could proceed as they had planned. And this is the exact place that we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9 where the disciples had been with Jesus. They had this great leadership. They had this great vision for how the kingdom of God was supposed to work. And yet, they simply missed the mark. So what do you do when you miss the mark? What do you do when you miss the point of what your Lord and Savior is trying to teach you? You see, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark opens up with Mark describing Jesus bursting on the scene saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then all throughout this narrative, all throughout this story, Mark is painting the picture that Jesus is this central figure in the kingdom of God. That Jesus is doing only things that God can do. And so that Jesus must be the central focal point of this kingdom of God. And at this point in Mark chapter 9, the disciples had just seen the transfiguration. Three of them anyway. And then they came down the mountain and they had just seen Jesus cast a demon out of this mute boy. And then immediately after that, Jesus goes forth and he's teaching the disciples that he must be humiliated, that he must die, and that he must be resurrected to really truly usher in this kingdom. And yet despite of all these things that Mark is describing for us, the disciples are preoccupied with their own greatness. So the first thing I want to look at is the desire for greatness. And we see in verses 33 and 34 that they had come into Capernaum. They got to this house, probably Peter's house. There's the definite article there, the house. And Jesus asks them, what were you discussing on the way? But the disciples kept silent. You see, they weren't talking about the transfiguration, having gone up this mountain, hearing the voice of God audibly speak to them. They weren't talking about Jesus healing this boy with the unclean spirit that they couldn't seem to get figured out. And they weren't talking about this message that Jesus had been proclaiming that he was going to have to be humiliated and die. They weren't talking about any of that, but rather they were discussing, arguing amongst themselves, which one of them was the greatest. Well, I don't know about you, but if, if I were in their shoes, I probably would have wanted to be digesting some of that stuff that I had just seen. Probably couldn't wrap my brain around that. As I was reading this, as I was studying this, I kind of I likened this exchange to some maybe some NFL ball boys standing on the sideline of the Super Bowl a couple years ago watching Tom Brady throw a few touchdown passes. And then after Tom Brady completes one of those passes, they would start arguing with themselves over which one of them held the football the greatest. It just seems to me an asinine way to go about your business when you're watching the Lord and Savior of the universe and then argue about who are you when compared to this man. And so the disciples are missing the mark in this conversation. They don't properly understand who Jesus is. They don't properly understand that the leadership of Jesus is pointing towards this humble and sacrificial death. And as we look at this, as we look at this text, I think we can pretty easily read this and think, well, how foolish are these disciples? 
How could they possibly think about themselves when they had just seen such amazing, miraculous things? Should they not know better? And I think if, if we stop and examine the totality of Scripture, we would realize that this desire for greatness maybe isn't so unnatural to them as we might first think. You see, the disciples were probably pretty familiar with their Bibles. They would have known Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They would have known that mankind was made in the image of God. They would have known that mankind would have been the pinnacle of God's creation, that we were good, and that they would have known in Genesis 1.28 that God gave this command to rule and subdue and to serve as vice regents over all creation. And then they would have known in Genesis 12 as well that not only was mankind the pinnacle of creation, but that there was a special and particular people that God had called to himself, the disciples' father Abraham. And in Genesis 12, Abraham is promised by God that he will have a great name, that God will give him a great family, and that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, there's this design for greatness that humans naturally have. We're designed for greatness and then we're designed and called into this great and marvelous relationship with God. But this is examples, these are examples of of God's greatness on God's terms. And so just as we have this natural wiring for greatness, I think we also have this sinful but natural desire to twist that greatness and to make it not about God, but rather about ourselves. You see, in our fallen nature, in our sin, it's so easy to twist things. Is it not so easy to make something about yourself rather than God? Is it not so easy to care more about what you're doing in life rather than what God has called you to do? Isn't it so easy to believe that you are so absolutely essential to God and his work and that shouldn't God be glad to have someone so smart and wise and effective on his team as you? You see, the Bible, I think, provides a really great example of this kind of twisted desire for greatness. Actually, in Genesis chapter 11, you see, in Genesis chapter 11, there's all the people on the earth. They're all speaking the same language, and they have this command, right, from God to rule, subdue, build cities, make arts, serve as God's vice regents. And so these people gather together. They take this command to work and to build, and they say, let's make for ourselves a city. Let's build ourselves a tower to the highest heavens that we might make a name for ourselves, lest we be forgotten. And so these people gather together, they build this massive tower, but instead of serving God by living out this mandate, they were serving themselves, making a name for themselves, advancing their own kingdom rather than the kingdom that God called them to advance. And you see the disciples here in verses 33 and 34, they were arguing for a Genesis 11 kind of greatness, lest they be forgotten, make their names great, rather than a Genesis 12 greatness in which God promises to Abraham, I will make your name great. And so this desire for greatness is natural because we are wired for God himself, but so is this ability to twist the desire and make it a self-centered personal greatness rather than for God. And so what do you do? What do you do in this moment when you have this natural desire for greatness, but also this very natural, sinful self-inclination to make yourself great 
rather than to magnify God. What are you supposed to do when you have this sinfully inflated sense of self-importance? Well, I think Mark gives us the answer. It's not so much what we do, but rather what God does for us. So if we look in verse 35, we see that grace meets us right exactly where we are. Grace exposes our sin and grace calls us back to the God who made him made us for himself. So if you look in verse 35, Jesus sat down and he calls the 12 disciples to himself and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. You see, Jesus doesn't respond to the disciples' desire for greatness with finger pointing or head wagging. You see, Jesus so graciously redefines greatness for the disciples in kingdom terms. He takes their twisted desire for greatness and he untwists it and puts it back to where it's supposed to be. A greatness that comes from humbly loving others as an expression of God's great love for them. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God is not simply other-centric, but rather it is supremely God-centric. And so let's look at how Jesus redefines greatness, first with exposing their desire. So Jesus sits the disciples down and he asks them this question. And they don't know how to respond. So you see, in order to have this correct understanding of what greatness is, in order to, to truly know the right answer, the disciples first have to have their unbelief exposed. And so Jesus, like the great physician that he is, he exposes and diagnoses the disease before he administers the cure. Right? And he asks this simple question, what were you discussing on the way? And they're silent. It's not really a difficult question. The answer is not horribly difficult to construe. But they're embarrassed and they're shameful and they say nothing. You see, Mark is painting the picture of the disciples here in Mark chapter 9. Exactly the same way that he paints the picture of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3. You see, back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus takes this man with a withered hand and he brings him up to the Pharisees in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he says, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to, to save a life rather than to kill it? And because of the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts, they say nothing. And so with a simple question, Jesus exposes the hearts of men and in their shame... They are silent. And their shame, their greater concern is exposed. The disciples are more concerned with their own rank, their own brand, their own kingdom, rather than the kingdom that God is calling them into. But the grace of God doesn't just expose the disciples' sin. It doesn't just lay them bare in their shame and their sin. No, Jesus graciously corrects their understanding. He exposes it, but then he gives them something to chew on. He gives them something to redefine the terms. He doesn't sit them down and say, you have this horrible, life-threatening, painful disease, and you are surely hell-bound no matter what. Nor does he sit them down and say, you know what? You're sincere, and you're trying your best, and you're really doing okay, just... Be sincere about what you believe. No, no, he sits them down. He takes this position as an authoritative teacher, calls them to himself and says, no, you don't get it. If you want 
to be first in this kingdom, you have to be last. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the servant of all. And so Jesus exposes their sin with this question, but then he graciously tells them, this is what you ought to believe. This is what you ought to do if you want to be my people in my kingdom. And the beautiful thing, I think, about what Jesus does here in this moment is that he doesn't just stop at telling them. He just doesn't say, be this way. He then gives them a real-life object lesson, a real-life example of what he means. So he grabs this child in verse 36. He took a child and put the child in the midst of the group. And taking the child in his arms, he says to the disciples, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus doesn't just tell them how to behave. He gives them an example and he uses this child as an object lesson. If you want to be great, Jesus is saying, you need to embrace this child. You need to become a servant of those who are lowly and not thought well of. And sometimes I think we can read this at first glance and say, why, why wouldn't you embrace this child? What's What's keeping them from grabbing this cute kid and bringing them along in, in the ministry efforts of the disciples? But what we don't realize often is that in this day and age, children were not the coddled, cherished focal points of adults' lives, right? They were the marginalized, not meaningful outcasts on society. See, it wasn't until the 70s or 80s that parenting became a verb, right? Parents before the 70s and 80s didn't have the same care, didn't have the same nurturing, didn't have the same embracing of children that we do now. And so as we read this, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying, you need to be like this child who is quiet and humble and well-behaved. Nor is Jesus embracing this child and telling the disciples, you need to have a simple and childlike faith like this kid. No, the point of embracing this child, Jesus is saying, is you need to embrace those who society says don't matter. You need to put others before yourself and reach out to those who are thought poorly of because that's what God in Christ has done for us. That is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. That is the definition of greatness in the kingdom of God. But here's where I think the Bible gives us really, really, really good news. And that's that Jesus doesn't just call his disciples to this change in behavior. He doesn't say, be like me and embrace this kid like I'm doing. Right, That would be moralism. That would be legalism. Do this thing and you will be loved well by God. No, the message of Jesus is not simply a shift in behavior. Rather, he's calling the disciples to have a shift in belief. And the Bible calls that repentance. You see, the disciples were called to embrace the child in the name of Jesus. Right? That meant that when they embraced the child in the name of Jesus, they would embrace the one who sent Jesus. So embracing this child in the name of Jesus meant that they were embracing God the Father himself. Right? Greatness in the kingdom of God is not simply other-centric, putting others before yourself. Greatness in the kingdom of God is supremely God-centric, 
Because God is the one who condescended and embraced us first. You see, receiving such a child, like Jesus calls us to, doesn't make God love you. But rather, it shows that in your heart of hearts, you love God enough to love exactly like God. Right? Receiving someone who is so lowly and so poorly thought of as receiving a child is showing that you truly understand the heart and the nature of who God is. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is robustly consistent that we only receive God after he has first received us. And the fact that God condescended from heaven on high to come and receive us gives us the motivation then, gives us the pattern, and gives us the power to embrace those like a child who are lowly. Jesus doesn't just teach us about becoming humble Jesus actually goes so far as to humble himself on the cross to the point of death for our sake that we might not only understand what this looks like, but that we might be brought into the family of God and can live this out in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus doesn't just talk about embracing those who are lowly and outcast. He doesn't just teach about it. He himself becomes lowly and he becomes cast out on the cross that we might be brought near to the Father. And Jesus doesn't just admonish the disciples. He bears the penalty himself for those who would pridefully and arrogantly serve themselves and give no regard to God the Father. He doesn't just call the disciples out and expose their sin and their shame. He himself bears the consequences for those who miss the mark in the kingdom of God and would only serve themselves. You see, Jesus not only tells us how to be great, not only shows us how to be great, but he, by his death and his resurrection, empowers us to be great when we come to him in faith and repentance. Christian, if you trust that Jesus the Christ has done this for you, then you have been brought into this household of God. And then you now have the obligation and the command to live and to love like the God who saved you. And this is, I think, there's one really great application and and almost implication of this text and these verses. And I think it's that this is the great democratization of, of Christianity, right? Oftentimes we think of people who are great heroes of the faith. We think of the people that have done great ministries, gone far away, planted churches, had ministries, had written books, or had books written about them. And we think that greatness is reserved for a select few who God has done great things with, who have memorized all their catechism, memorized all their Bible verses. And those are good things. Do those things. But... Greatness in the kingdom of God is not reserved for a select sect of people. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not reserved for those of us who are in paid vocational ministry. Greatness in the kingdom of God is open to all who in faith come to Christ and humble themselves. You see, just like eternal life is open to all who believe in the name of Jesus and call upon him to be saved, greatness in the kingdom of God is open to all who humble themselves and are humbly devoted to the one who humbled himself on the cross for their sake. Greatness in the kingdom of God is open to all 
who would call upon the name of Jesus and live just as he loved us. You see, Christians, you and I have been called into this radical, otherworldly, countercultural greatness. One in which it butts up pretty strongly against the cultures of the world that say, be great, advance your own kingdom, advance your own brand, but the greatness of Christianity consists of dying to yourself, putting others ahead of yourself, because there is one who died for you and put you ahead of himself. So brothers and sisters, would you consider the greatness and the grace of our God and Christ for you this week? And would you lovingly embrace those who are on the outside with the same love that God embraced you with while you were on the outside? Only then will you be great in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you and your wondrous love and incomprehensible mercy left heaven to ransom a people for yourself. You left heaven to ransom a people who were even sinful and rebellious and far off. And while your people were so sinful and rebellious and far off, you died for them that they might be brought back to life in you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your presence, that we would know you more deeply and more fully, and that we would see your greatness and glory and grace, and that we would be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus, that we would humbly reach out and serve those who are unlovable for your glory. King Jesus, we are so grateful for this opportunity to worship you today and to hear your word. We love you. And we pray these things all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.